the cases that continuously hurt my heart are what's called direct file. So in Florida, the state attorney's office, the prosecutors have the power to charge children as adults. And in that system, they decide, are we going to put you in adult court or are we going to put you in juvenile court? And the focus of juvenile court is rehabilitation, is, you know, support. The focus of the adult criminal system is punishment. And that when you take 14 and 15 and 16 year old children and put them into adult incarceration sentences, it is Traumatic isn't even the strongest word I can use, and I don't want to be graphic and detailed, but it is horrific. The Your Life After podcast is a place where people can talk about the lives they lead after traumas. This podcast will feature survivors, victims, and professionals sharing their experiences, expertise, insights, and struggles. The goal here is not to showcase stories of triumph, though I'm sure some of those stories will be triumphant. The goal is to shine a light on our own shared humanity and to perhaps encourage someone to move forward through their own trauma. I'm your host, Robin Dunn-Bryant. I'm a coach who helps people heal from the physiological effects of generational trauma, sexual abuse, and sexual assault. Let's get talking, shall we? I'm doing a special series of interviews to talk about the individual and collective trauma we are living in because of the coronavirus pandemic. Though I'm recognizing the anxiety and fear that people are expressing, what I'm also noticing are those deep and meaningful shifts that people are experiencing. It's not unusual for my husband and me to take note of something new that we're doing for ourselves or in our roles as partners and parents and say, when we go back out, we want to keep this. This is the driving force for these interviews. The question I have for myself and for my guests is how can we use the knowledge that we have and the insight from this experience to make these shifts lasting changes? Hey there, Jessica. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me. I'm so, so glad that you're here. Um, We're going to just jump right in if that's okay with you. So here, here's, here's my first question, because let's get this out of, let's get this out of the way. So a lot of us have very limited working knowledge about what it is that you do on a day-to-day basis. I watch a lot of Law and Order. Um, that's all I know about criminal defense, right? So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what that, what that happy, what happens for real with people? Like I see one episode, most of the time it's resolved in the episode, maybe there's a story arc. This is very different from what really happens to real people. And I think that might be a good thing, a good place for us to start to talk about that arc for people. That is the reality of of what you see on a day to day basis. No, that's a perfect question. So, you know, unfortunately, I think criminal defense lawyers have this reputation or people just think, well, you're going to get them off or oh, you're going to get that acquittal or, you know, how can you represent people? 
that have done these things, you know, and I represent people that are accused of committing crime. And it's the state attorney's job to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the same protection that all of us have in this country, whether guilty or not guilty. We are all presumed innocent and we all are given that constitutional protection of the presumption of innocence. But from, you know, a lot of times, especially in law and order, which that's our favorite game is to yell objections, you know, at the screen. (laughs) But, you know, in law and order, you see the trial. You know, you are seeing the lawyers in the courtroom talking to a jury, talking to a judge. Uh, My favorite is when they talk to the judge, you know, behind um, you know, in a closed room that never happens on the record, at least not in criminal practice. But it's so much more. You know, the calls that I get as a private lawyer are usually, you know, my boyfriend's just been arrested or they just came and, and took my sister or can you help right now, right now, right now. And so those are the calls I get now versus in the public defender's office as attorneys were appointed the next day. So if someone's been arrested, They wait for first appearance in the morning, usually, and then we get appointed to be their lawyer at that point if they qualify. So that's the very beginning. And then the typical process is, you know, we get a witness list from the state. We get police reports from the state. And then we do our own investigation also. You know, we have our own investigators that talk to defense witnesses, get the whole picture together. Usually then we start depositions where we subpoena people to come in and tell us on the record what their testimony or what their story is. And all along the way, we have court dates that are case management conferences where we just come in and kind of give the court an idea of where we are on the case. It's easier to take more time if your clients are out of custody, because then, you know, it's obviously not such a burden. It's still a heavy weight hanging over them having this accusation there, but at least they're home versus clients that are in custody. Um, I try very hard to stay in touch with my clients that are in custody to talk with them on a weekly or bi-monthly, you know, every other week because they are in jail. And that's one of the biggest issues we see is when you're in jail waiting your day in trial, you know, they don't show that on TV. They don't show that it can take nine months to a year to two years to even have your day in court, right? And so... That's the part that is concerning. In Florida, we have protections. We have a right to a speedy trial. But, you know, depending on the case, you may waive that right. You may not. And so it it's, a, you know, it, it can take a lot longer than an hour. Now, some cases, you know, we, we get them, we review them. The evidence is there. And our job is to negotiate the very best resolution. You know, what's going to keep our client's record clean? What's going to be the minimal impact as far as, you know, a punishment or being punitive? How can we make sure that they're successful if it's drug treatment or, you know, any kind of rehabilitation? Sometimes our job is to say, no, your rights were violated. You know, these officers searched you, they seized you, they violated your Miranda rights, they did all of these things without probable cause, and we're challenging the case in that way. And then sometimes our clients are absolutely not guilty. And they, you know, we are entitled to go to trial. We are entitled to fight in there and challenge the evidence. And that's my favorite part of the whole process. But that final one hour, you know, it can take a long time to get there. <laughs> so I can't even imagine sitting in a cell for, for years. You know, I, I, um, I can't even remember who it was. I, I, there was a conversation that, so it could have been a TV show or a podcast. I'm not sure, but they were talking about, talking with someone who had spent some time uh, in prison. And one of the things that he said was like, 
that time moves in a way that you can't imagine, even though everything is kind of regimented for you, right? Your day is, is, is done. You're going to do the things when they say you're going to do them. But he said, you know, the time moves so slowly um, in there, you know, people are like, oh, you're only in for a few years or a few months or whatever. And he's like, that's, it's forever. You know, a weekend can feel like a lifetime, you know, just depending on how your mind is set up. So I can't imagine languishing for years um, in those sorts of situations. It, it, that just, uh, it just, it really, it really gets to me. And there's this kind of, um, this impact and this effect of everyone around that person too. You know, their family members trying to be in contact with them or trying to help them, any children or partners that they've left behind, you know, all of those things kind of unravel as that person is waiting for their day in court. Okay, I have to shake that off a little bit. (laughs) There's, um, I hear a lot about kind of the the tail end of this legislature, this, uh, this process for people, right? So, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, the big thing was that there were, you know, I don't know where this number came from. It always sounded like, you know, a big stampede of people were coming, but I kept hearing in all these meetings, 1,500 people are going to be released, you know, from custody into our community. We have to do something about this. We have to set all these things up. I don't know really what got set up out of that. Um, but that was a conversation I remember hearing maybe three or four years ago, maybe a little bit further back, you know, before the baby was born, maybe five years ago. Um, and people were talking about that. So we're always talking about the end, right? When people come out and, you know, this, this idea of what we can do to support people. And I think some of the support that we offer, in my humble opinion, is not as broad as it could be. Um, as a person who works with trauma, I'm always looking at that and going, this has got to be a traumatic situation just in and of itself. You know, what is it that we're doing in order to help mitigate that? And then what do we do to support this person? to get them in the right places with the right people to move forward. Um, but everybody talks about the end. Um, and, and I think that, you know, most of us could stand to be a little bit more educated about this. You know, I'm not trying to, I, I'm, I'm not a person that likes, what is the phrase now everybody uses? Like trauma porn is not what I'm looking for. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, but I do want us to have an idea of, of what you've seen. What are these cases, you know, if we if we thought if we think about, you know, one of the big ones or an amalgam, I know you are going to give us really specifics about a particular person. But talk to us about this impact, this this full impact, because I want people to really walk away from this conversation, understanding what this could mean for somebody's life. For me, it's the children. And I say children because, you know, they are children to me. It's their teenage, you know, age. but it is the kids that walk into school that I have represented and are yanked out by law enforcement and don't come home again. <sighs> so I have represented, I mean, I, I can't tell you their names, but I can tell you their, I can tell you their names. And they walk into school that day, whether at Godby High School or at Leon High School, and their moms and dads send them off for the day and they are yanked out. They are questioned without a parent present. I have clients who waive their Miranda rights in less than a minute and a half. So you as a child can't vote, can't buy cigarettes, can't buy alcohol, can't do any of these things, can't drive. I mean, I've had kids younger than 16, but you can waive your Miranda rights in less than a minute and a half, and that's going to be, you know, held up in a court of law. But this, 
the cases that continuously hurt my heart are what's called direct file. So in Florida, the state attorney's office, the prosecutors have the power to charge children as adults. And in that system, they decide, are we going to put you in adult court or are we going to put you in juvenile court? And the focus of juvenile court is rehabilitation, is, you know, support. The focus of the adult criminal system is punishment. And that when you take 14 and 15 and 16 year old children and put them into adult incarceration sentences, it is Traumatic isn't even the strongest word I can use, and I don't want to be graphic and detailed, but it is horrific. And when I, as a mother, have to call their mothers and tell them, you know, this is not a slap on the wrist and little Johnny is going to go home. This is a 10-year minimum mandatory. This is a, you know, substantial prison sentence. And those cases are the ones that you know, I lose sleep over at night because, you know, true, not true, provable, not provable, the accusations happen and we send our kids off during the day thinking they'll be safe. And the second somebody accuses you of something, that protection goes away. And now you're a criminal or now you've done something and now you're in handcuffs. And you know, whether we want to believe it in ourselves or not, everybody sees that instantly as, oh my gosh, what have they done? And all of that is gone. And those are the cases where, you know, we have to change these laws. We have to educate our children to protect them, you know, from these kinds of law enforcement interactions. But I have represented far too many children in adult court. And that is my career goal is to undo direct file legislation, make it no longer applicable to charge children as adults. But if we want to talk and we want to have real talk with anyone who's listening and who anyone who wonders about the criminal justice system, charging children as adults is a continued practice that is going to ruin our future. What's so funny, I you know, I have a five year old and mm-hmm. my I have two kids. My oldest is twenty five, right? The kids are nineteen nineteen years apart. And up until her birthday I mean, recently, in the past few months, even, she said to me, my brain's not done yet, right? 25, 25 years old. And so I think about that and think about, you know, when it is that we are able to make these kind of, how can you, how can you give up your Miranda rights as a teenager when you probably don't even know what that means? You just know that authority figures are angry with you and you're going to give them what they want. You're going to tell them or do whatever it is that they say because you want that. I mean, that's a trauma response. You want that threat gone. How, how is that even legal? That that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right. Is that I, this is a tangent here, but I'm really you know I've got a little kid, right? I'm thinking about that. What is it that can happen for for that also to not be allowed anymore? Because that seems like both of those things work part and parcel together. We have to challenge it and the legal. You know, the legal standard is, was it a knowing and voluntarily, a knowing and voluntary waiver of your right? Did you have the knowledge of what you were waiving, what you were giving up? And when we look at the totality of the circumstances, did you do it freely and voluntarily? And the courts differ on how that means. You know, if you're being held down and 
thankfully, we are entering a world with body camera evidence, with recorded interrogations, with making sure that there's a, you know, recording of these questioning. But if you, you know, if you read it and they're not holding you down or beating you, you know, then that if you can read, if you can write, if you can understand as, you know, a freshman in high school, then the court could find that under that totality, it was a free and knowing waiver. And in that circumstance, anything you said would be used against you. Now, thankfully, we we have had cases where we've seen that and people are much more aware when they see us. You know, if you have not seen that documentary on Netflix, you know, it's the exonerated five. That is the exact story of false interrogation, of coerced confession and how children can say things that they don't mean. I mean, Robin, you know, I have two boys. We, you, These kids say stuff all of the time. You know, they're children. And right. half the time I'm like, what? What did you just say? But my <laughs> brain filters it as, oh, my gosh, you know, I hear these things in cases all the time and they're taken as true. And so it's it's problematic. But the best thing we can do as parents is, you know, continue to educate our children on, you know, their their rights and to just say over and over, which we practice with my nine year old and my six year old. I want my mom. She's an attorney. I need an attorney. I want an attorney. I need an attorney. And it's a very fine line. And, and let me be very clear. I come from a white privileged family saying that, you know, I know that there are much more difficult conversations happening with my minority friends, you know, with my black friends that are having to teach their children these kinds of things. And we shouldn't be talking about this to nine and six year olds, but it's the reality. And so all I can do is, is continue to educate and say, yes, you know, you have rights as children because we all think they can't take my kid out of school. They can't take my kid out of school without telling me. Well, if they're under suspicion of something, they can. That is, that is terrifying and good information to have. I mean, I think even now thinking about that, no matter where it is that I live, for the rest of my life, I'm going to I'm going to research some of these things. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to walk around and not recognize that. And it and it blows me. I can't vote. I can't smoke. You know, there are you know, I'm not really looking forward to my my five year old ever being a sexual being, but he will be. But sure. as a teenager, there are there are limitations to who he's allowed to be with. But you can give away because there's no way these things don't make sense. Okay. I got a couple of things that I need to do, you know, going for going forward. I can get on my old uh, soapbox and try to try to get some things moving because that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and you talk about some devastation doing ten years as a teenager. You know, all that all that really important developmental time. Not only then you come out with the stigma, but you've missed so many things that you really needed in order to be a full and complete person. Um, and and I can't imagine, I can't imagine, I'm 50, I can't imagine being locked up. And intellectually, I can process that. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a child and what that would do to me and sure. what I would walk around with afterwards. It's just, it is beyond the pale. It really mm-hmm. is. I can't believe that, that that's what's happening. I'm, I'm on it, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, we, if we're talking about this, that feels like, as a, as a human and as a mother, the most devastating side of this coin. What what have you seen that has has given you a little a little piece of hope, a little bright at the end of the tunnel? Because I can't imagine that. No, I'm not going to decide, right? Like I don't know. 
In my mind, I'm saying right now, boy, oh boy, this is a hard job to do. And maybe it's not as heavy as I'm imagining. So what about, what about that? Where's that balance? Um, and, and what have you seen that really kind of keeps you coming back to it? It, I mean, it is absolutely the gravity and the weight of what we do, but there are victories and the resilience and fight of the people I have represented have made me a better person. The success, and it, it's not necessarily a not guilty or a dismissal, but just the the people I have represented where they walk out of this situation and they haven't been ruined and they are moving forward, those are the success. You know, if it means we get not a conviction or we get, you know, probation instead of prison or we get, you know, some sort of victory, it's not just the not guilty, but it is the people that I have represented that I see at Publix and they are just, Miss Jessica, you know, oh my gosh, I got this fantastic job. I just, you know, completed school. Can you write me a letter of recommendation for this? That is truly the joy. And those highs, you know, those happy days when we are truly making a difference and truly making impact, those are what gets you through the bad days because there are, there is significant loss and I I will not beat around the bush, you know, in a public defender docket, especially you are standing in a courtroom with 10 to 15 people in custody, in jail, in handcuffs, and they're either they're going back to jail because you can't resolve their case or they're going to prison because we resolved it that way. You know, sometimes they're getting out and they're going on probation and, and that's a win, but it is that gravity, you know, every single day is heavy. And I think if you don't, if it comes to a point as a criminal defense lawyer where it's not bothering you anymore, then there's a problem because it's, we're dealing with human beings, whether they're accused of a serial killer or they're accused of stealing cereal, you know, it, it, either way, it's the people we represent and the biggest, the biggest joy and truly what gets you through is, you know, so many times, well, a memory will pop up on Facebook or someone will say, Oh, I just found our emotions from this case. Gosh, do you remember that case? And it, it really does, you know, help you, know that the fight is worth it because it is so meaningful and helping our clients succeed, you know, it it changes their life and it changes ours, you know, in the same way. And so that, that's what helps. And that's what, you know, gets you waking up every single day because there's not a day, even in the sad days, you know, I might sleep in a little later, but there is not a day that I don't wake up happy to go to fight somebody and happy to go to battle for someone that, you know, that needs my help. You know, it's, it's so interesting, though, too, you're talking about kind of this, you know, I love that that idea of running into somebody in public, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, and I, there's nothing better than having this this moment that you've shared with somebody that's really touched them mm-hmm. and then just running into them. It's, it's delightful. Right. Um, my husband used to teach, and so he would see, and he taught for long enough now that he's seeing, like, he taught elementary school kids that are in high school, right? Right. So, you know, Coach Bryant, we, we're doing these things or whatever. And every time, like, you can just see him, like, fill up, right? Because, I mean, it's sweet. Like, they were tiny little people, and they're, like, as tall as him and, you know, all of these things. And it's so fast. It happens so quickly. So being able to have that kind of connection is, I think, is is huge. And, yeah, I can see where that would be enough, you know, Fight the good fight for for those sorts of resolutions because, you know, the other ones are coming. You just keep going to kind of balance it out. 
it's it's one of the things we've been talking about in our house and and one of the things that has kind of started this series of conversations that I'm having right now is this is this pandemic um and what I'm noticing <laughs> gosh this sounds so ironic now right like I'm saying this out loud for the first time since all these protests have started but this this light being shown on all of the cracks in our foundation all of these things that we're seeing that are broken or in need of repair or of need of attention um, across the board. I, I can't think of any any place in society that that doesn't need just a little shoring up right now, and and that it's being really clearly shown. If people are interested in looking, um, some folks are pretty happy with things the way they are. I'm always a fan of change, so I'm like all for it. But as we're as I'm thinking about this and really thinking about you know I've, I've I've heard some things that you've said before. I think your approach is it it warms my grinchy heart. It's very it feels very trauma informed, right? And that just makes me excited because you're kind of looking at this and looking at the whole person, the whole situation that they're in and what's your part in booing them out of a bad space, right? You can't do it all, but this is your role and you're part of this whole system. You see yourself that way and I don't I don't hear people talking about that as much. Um, and so as we're looking at these, these cracks and these systems and these foundations and these things that need to change, what are you seeing in, in your arena? Where's the light shining right now? Is it, and I'm feeling like that's really silly, but I'm going to ask that question because I can imagine some of the things that you might say at this point. Sure. And it, I mean, the, the glaring light is our continued over incarceration of our citizens. It is, you know, when a hurricane hits, when a pandemic comes, you know, as you can imagine, those that have been accused or convicted of crime are the bottom of everyone's concern. Mm-hmm. And we are rallying to, you know, get to, you know, to, to support our families to do everything we can. And we forget, you know, that there's people that are trying to do this on their own. There's single moms that are trying to do this. And now school's closed and their husband's in jail. And, you know, the choice is, do I, pay bond money or do I put food on the table tonight? And those are incredibly difficult challenges that so many of my clients are dealing with every single day, you know, when the choice is electric bill or get someone out of jail. And so the glaring light is this machine that is the criminal justice system. And while, you know, our courts are trying to to set dockets and, you know, everyone is trying to work together to safely, bring access to justice, the bottom line is, you know, we don't have jury trials right now. We do not have jury trials. And the only way when the prosecutor is saying, I want this amount of years in prison, and I'm saying, well, we're not agreeing to that. You know, my client didn't do X, Y, and Z. They deserve this, or we're trying to figure out something. If you can't resolve it, your only way is in a trial. And we don't have trials right now. We don't have motions. I mean, if I want to file a motion to dismiss or a motion to suppress or something to say that there is some violation. I can't call witnesses right now. I can't put on testimony right now. And so the biggest frustration is, you know, for my clients that are out of custody, as I said earlier, you know, they can navigate it. But the biggest thing that gives my clients hope in jail is I can say, hey, you know, we've got this case, you know, this docket coming up soon. I know by this date, and I can give them something because you talk about time. 
when we're just resetting cases for six weeks at a time, you know, there's nothing to look forward to. And so this has shown, you know, this system of just arrest, incarcerate, wait until you get a trial is incredibly traumatic. It is incredibly problematic and it is not solving. You know, we used to be a society that locked up, you know, dangerous, scary, violent people, you know, to protect us. And now we lock up everyone and, at you know, racial disparity at huge, you know, poverty disparity levels. We know that we continue to do that. And now we're at 2.2 million people incarcerated in this country. You know, do you think they're being protected from COVID-19? No. And we know that they're not. So, you know, and I say this, you know, I know that we're taking precautions and I know that we are trying to all navigate through this together. But those of us fighting for people that are locked away, you know, we don't we don't get a lot of sympathy a lot of times. And so that is where we see, listen, if, if these people didn't have a cash bond they couldn't afford or did have some sort of supervised pretrial release or were given, you know, a minimum incarceration sentence, they could be home with their families. And, you know, that's that's the fight is to continue to figure out, you know, how we get away from 2.2 million people incarcerated. What is that? Is that is that the size of New York City? Is that (laughs) that's give or take? Right. Is that am I right? Yeah. I'm going to look that up because I'm that kind of person. That's a lot of people. Um, and, and, and all of them aren't violent criminals. And a lot of people end up getting tripped up in, you know, three strikes laws, depending on where they live or really petty things. Um, and, and some people end up incarcerated because everything else, all the other systems failed them. And what they're just trying to do is survive. And that, and that just doesn't seem you know, social worker's heart, right? I'm going back to school. This is what this is what I'm seeing. I'm looking at it and I'm like, if we can stop all of this beforehand, then we only pick up the people that are really violent and really dangerous. And we, you know, we put them away. And still, even then, I look at it and go, we can't just let them languish in here. Exactly. exactly. What can we do to support people in these spaces so that, you know, if and when they come out, that they're not further damaged as humans so that they can kind of move in society and what kind of things can we remove that are punitive for people after they, after they come out like this, all these different ways that you're taxed once you're released from prison is it's it, a friend of mine did the math for me. Um, she does a lot of work with felons and she was mapping out some things, but he had a driver's license that lapsed and there were fees and these were you know, several hundred dollars with daily fees that were compounding essentially so how do you ever get out of that hole? Right. She's like, yeah, go ahead. No, that's the system. You know, even when we, even when we say, okay, grand theft of a motor vehicle, you've stolen a car. Okay. Well, you do six months in jail and then that's followed by probation. I mean, when you come out of the jail time, you're on probation. You're supposed to be paying this money per month. You have random urinalysis. You're supposed to be doing a theft class. You're supposed to be doing all these things, but you just got out of jail. You don't have a driver's license. And just the, the humanity and the sympathy is gone. You know, people say, well, you know, did the crime do the time? And it's just that's it, it can't be that way. And there's also so much more that's going on behind the scenes. You know, people look at a charge and that is my one, you know, that I beg my friends that are employers and small businesses, you know, give folks a chance because you see 
Grand Theft Motor Vehicle. Okay, well, let's look at it. He was 19. He was with his buddies. It was his ex-girlfriend's car, and they drove to Circle K. Okay, I mean, look, that's a whole different situation than, you know, an armed robbery or something. So look at what's really going on here and judge it by the person and not the rap sheet, you know, because it's, it's a completely different view. And I think so often if a lot of us, you know, would just spend five minutes with someone really talking to them and just figure out, you know, give them the chance to show you, you know, because that is the biggest, the biggest issue that we see is employment and, you know, access to the same economic opportunities that all of us have, because that I can tell usually you know, I've got it pretty much down. I can tell which one of my clients are going to be successful on probation. It's usually because they have a strong family unit somewhere to have some support. They've got a job lined up. I can usually tell, okay, they're, they're going to be all right and they should be okay. I can tell you who's not, you know, and it's sometimes it is their choice. Sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes they're violated because they don't have a place to live, you know, right. or they're sleeping at their sister's house than sleeping at their cousin's house. So, we have to truly look at what our system does. Their system is just like, you know, how we raise our children. If you make a mistake, there's a consequence, you know, you lose a privilege, you're in timeout, but then you come back to our family and we love you and we move forward. I mean, there's a lesson learned. It's supposed to be punitive enough so that you don't want to come back, but not punitive enough that it's ruining the rest of your life. And that's, that's where we've gone in the system. We're just locking people up, sending them away and, you know, no plan for when they come home. And that, that, that plan is the thing that is so, that's what I hear everywhere else as well. It's so crucial and it has to be comprehensive, right? There's gotta be, there's gotta be a net that wraps around them, a safety net that wraps around someone when they come out, right? All of these things that they need, all of these systems in place and the fewest number of hoops to jump through as possible um, because all of that stuff. And I think about not having a car in Tallahassee. I've lived in Chicago. I lived in D.C. You can get around. Um, you can barely make it across town without transferring here. I can't imagine having to go to several different places on a bus during the day because they don't run at night um, and being able to live on a bus line and all of that sort of stuff how much harder it makes you just to do the simple things that you need to do, let alone the things that you need to do so that somebody will say, we're going to let this lapse for you, right? You don't have to do any of this anymore. You have to have all of this time built up. It just makes everything harder. And I, yeah, there, a whole reform I feel like yep. really needs to happen. Um, and, and, and people need to understand not to look at somebody. I've done things that I'm not too proud of, I won't run for office because people will probably <laughs> pop up and say, we know some things about this girl, right? Um, I could probably run for office here. I think I'm safe in Florida, but in other states, maybe not so much. But I, you know, it can't follow, it can't follow us forever. We don't, yeah. And I love that. We don't do that to our kids. Um, and we really shouldn't. And especially if we know my own hat that this person is traumatized, how is it that we help them heal? Because hurt people hurt people. How can we stop that? Um, and move that into a different space. And it makes me think about like you, right? Like this isn't, this isn't easy work. Um, you've got small people to come home to. We, we're expecting you to come home and be pleasant to your family, you know, to, you know, pet your cat, and not yell at the kids. This is, you know, low bar. We're, we're talking a low bar here, but, um, 
how is it that how is it that y'all, especially you specifically, but even if you know other folks, how do people deal with that? Right. This vicarious trauma that will will happen in the system that you're working in. I think it's the same that all of us struggle with that are just trying to help, you know, our social workers, our counselors, you know, our teachers. Um, some days are all right, Robin. You know, I, I have to force myself to unplug. I have to force myself to just, you know, put it out of my mind. But my routine, you know, is from five to eight, I'm with the boys and I put the mom hat on. And then usually from eight on, I'm back to working. So it, it depends on the day. Um, the good days are good, you know, and it's nice to come home and to share and to be, you know, I, I'm very open and honest with my boys. I, I want them to know what I do. I want them to know, you know, what I feel that we should be doing in society, you know, and so, but at the same time, you know, the bad days are tough. And I, you know, have stood in a courtroom downtown holding a sobbing mother as her child is carted off to prison and then I get my person go pick up my kids in the in the drive-thru you know in the pickup line and that is you know it's heavy and it's it's recognizing a lot about you know how how we handle that healthy you know I'll I'll be honest you know I watch a lot of garbage television sometimes you know I probably have one too many glasses of wine sometimes it depends you know I think we all do it the best we can but I also you know for me, I I don't ever want to give up the fight. And so I just get up the next day and do it again. And, you know, it might not be the healthiest way all the time, but putting myself back into the work usually helps because there is always another client and there is always another battle and there is always more work to be done. There's always going to be more work to be done in the criminal justice system. And so refocusing the next day helps. But, you know, there's good and bad days. You're, you're running for office right now. I am. And it feels like that is taking you deeper into the well in some ways, right? Because, um, because the work that you're doing is going to, going to change maybe in some ways, but uh, really your, your level of responsibility is going to be much larger, mm-hmm. um, than it is probably right now. Talk to us, talk to us a little bit about that. Tell me what it is that you're doing. And I really, I'm fascinated by your platform. So I I really want you to talk about that as well, too, because I think folks need to hear that. Thank you. So I was at the public defender's office for almost nine years. And I had, you know, from law school, my very first day at the internship, you know, I I walked into the detention center and, you know, excited 25 year old law student there to, to help. And there was a 12 year old boy and he was sitting at the table and he was handcuffed to the table and the adults in the room just walked around him like this was normal and this was you know expected and I just I literally remember wanting to say hold on does anyone see this child is is handcuffed here and you know the graceful incredible lawyer that I was with you know said we're gonna we're gonna address it you know just hang in there and we addressed it you know and we got him unshackled and we got him out thankfully that day but in that moment, I knew that I would never stop fighting this injustice. And I see that boy every day. I mean, I see him in my mind every day. And 10 years, almost 10 years at the public defender's office, you know, it is such 
a joy to be in a courtroom to, you know, that's where I feel my passion. That's where I want to be, you know, standing up for injustice, fighting for clients, you know, helping clients guide and navigate this incredible system. But as you get higher up, as all of us do, as you get higher up in your career and higher up in experience, you realize that, you know, there's different ways of doing things. And as a leader in the office, I was a division chief. So I was responsible for the most serious cases while also training and teaching the new lawyers. You know, there comes a point where you look at the office as a whole and realize, you know, there's so much more that we could be doing. And we have these ideas and we have these suggestions and we need to do them differently. Now, um, you know, in June of 2020, even more than ever, we are seeing the rampant need for change in the criminal justice system. And so the public defender's office represents about 80 percent of people that are arrested and accused in the circuit. So we have the ability to make the most change in the system. And my goal is to do three, three, three things. You know, I will be an attorney in the courtroom. I will continue to defend clients because that will set the example for representation in the office. Um, I'm board certified in criminal trial law. I'm proud to say I'm one of two women practicing still that is board certified in our circuit in criminal trial law. And that means I have reached a level of expertise that has been rigorously evaluated by the Florida Bar and allows me to say that I'm board certified. So that will be the expectation of representation for our clients. All of our lawyers, we will you know, strive to be board certified because I want to raise that level of our representation to be the very best it can be for our clients. Also, as an ally in the neighborhood, you know, Robin, it, getting to know you, getting to know so many people through the Sister Girl Network, just through you know, networking and, and all of these groups. We have incredible community leaders that are doing the work. You know, I as the lawyer can do the work in the courtroom, but you know, our outreach can do the work in the schools. Other outreach can do the work, you know, in our trauma and support. There's so many different ways that we all can come together in our own skill sets. And I think we have to do a better job knowing that the first time you meet the public defender, you know, should it be when you're arrested? It should be a part of these conversations in our neighborhood, you know, teaching our children what their rights are, being present when issues of police brutality or misconduct arise. We have to be that voice. And that's the final step is just being that advocate for justice. You know, we talk about all of these issues that are going on in the criminal justice system. And who do you hear from? Law enforcement, the prosecutors, the judges. We are the lawyers defending the people arrested. We're at the table for every single case. You know, we should be leading the charge for change, not only in the courtroom, but in our community. But from a legal standpoint, when we see these issues, we have to challenge them. We have to be the voice of our clients. We have to tell their stories and we have to be the, at the forefront of changing the law for the betterment of the people we represent. And so I plan, you know, to continue to do all those three things as I do now. You know, I was that way in the office and I'm going to continue to be that way as the leader. It is a critical role in our society, the elected state attorney, so the prosecutor, and the elected public defender. I mean, this is going to set the tone for how things go down at the courthouse. It really is. And my plan is to remain, you know, wholeheartedly committed to being the very best lawyer that I can be, leading the other lawyers in the office to be that way also. And that's the way we're going to effectuate change. I don't, I I never expect 
the answers that I get from people. <laughs> um, and I know I love that. I really do. I really, I really love being able to see, gosh, it sounds like such a cliche these days to see all sides. I really hate that in a lot of instances, mm-hmm. but I think about it like a Rubik's cube, right? Like we're trying to solve this puzzle and we've got to turn everything around. And so when people are, are looking at these complex issues and stepping back and going, here are the d- different ways that we can do this. It gets me so excited mm-hmm. because often it's, it's like we're doing, you know, a, a two dimensional puzzle on a table, right? And that's not how life is. That's not the way that we move through things. And so to be able to look at this and say, and you know, it's so funny. It's not funny, but it is. So it's ironic, I guess. I've never, I don't know who I'm not, not saying this to be disparaging, but this idea of hearing from the public defender, Never done that in any town that I've ever lived in, ever. Um, in any community, I've never, ever heard from the folks that are representing the people that are being accused of crimes. You know, your insight on on what's happening to the people, what happened to them, is the insight only that you would have because you would be the only person or your people in your position would be the only people privy to that information. And I, I don't think I've ever heard from one anywhere. And that's that's the problem. <laughs> so exactly. I mean, how can we tell the stories if we don't have anything to say? You know, how can we see the voice if we're not putting it out there? You know, and it is we are the lawyers that, you know, I just I think of the civil rights movement and these, you know, huge Supreme Court cases that come out because of course our protests and our demonstrations are going to make a difference and they are. We see it every single day. We are going to make a difference through that kind of grassroots advocacy. But we're also going to have to make a difference in a courtroom because we can march and look to make change. But if the law doesn't change or if the prosecutors don't start handling cases different or if we don't start challenging police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, every chance we see it, it will continue to go on because when you're just cleaning out cases, at a 97% rate, you're skimming the surface and you're not, you're not seeing what's going on underneath. But when people know, you know, hey, the public defender's office is going to catch that. They've got some good lawyers there. They're going to see, they're going to challenge these issues. You know, that's, that's going to be significant. And that's my plan. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I really do. I really do. My two cents. I don't know what that, what that, what that uh, really is worth right now, but I really love that. Really looking at that as, as a part of this community, I go, no, that makes perfectly good sense. Um, and, and that's what we need. And we need kind of this, this vanguard movement of people coming in and looking at things, maybe not radically differently. Maybe not. We could do a pivot or we could do, you know, a big shift, but we got to look at stuff differently and people need to, start connecting those dots and, and figuring out how if we, if we shift here, we can shift there and what that will mean for people. And I think that often we see these changes being made without any thought for humanity. And so to really be, that be the driving factor. I mean, you, you, you work with a servant's heart, right? Like this is part of, this is part of what you're doing because it matters to you. I think that that ripple effect is just going to be amazing. So I'm, I'm super excited. Um, the election coming up on August 18th here in Florida. I really appreciate you taking this time to, to come and talk to me about this, to get me a little more well-informed. I'm going to be talking to you, 
you know, a little bit later down the road about what I can do. Because there are a couple things that I'm pretty fired up about right now. And I want to make sure that I have what I need in order to try to be an effective uh, change agent as well to help whoever is leading the charge to kind of push a little harder on some of these things that need to shift. I look forward to it. I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you, Robin, for having me. I really do appreciate it. Now, this is awesome. I'm glad to know more. I am doing my due diligence as a informed voter. Mm-hmm. So I have used this to my advantage, but I really, I love what you do, what you're doing. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not one to BS them, but I am, but I'm not doing that now. I really do love what you're doing. I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about this. So thank you. Thank you so very much. Thanks for joining us this week on Your Life After. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of our patrons. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so you'll never miss out. Information about becoming a patron, show notes, and transcripts from today's episode can be found on our website, wsw.center slash your life after. That's wsw.center slash your life after, or just go to the homepage and click podcast from the main menu. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. Be peaceful.